Good morning, Monroe. How are you doing? My guys are laughing at me because I started saying that before I had unmuted my microphone. And Scott's over here laughing at me. Yeah, well, the you, first, the first one sounded so, better. Yeah, you were <laughs> the first so one sounded into it. so awesome. He's like, this is going to be the most epic <laughs> intro ever. Man, you know, I blew it. So, whatever. It's whatever. Whoops. Yeah. Okay, that's embarrassing. All right, let's moving on. You know, let's uh, read the uh, opening line here. Um, Pastors of the Roundtable um, is the, the the discipleship podcast of the Monroe Missionary Baptist. Maybe we should change the name to that. The the Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. Might be. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Our legal name's not even really Monroe Missionary Baptist What is it? It's like the Baptist Church of Monroe or something. Really? <laughs> I'd have to look in our constitution. It's the Missionary, uh, Missionary Baptist Church, Church of, of Monroe. Monroe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. To the legal... Constitution name. Hmm. I didn't. Shrocked your world, didn't it? Changes yeah. everything. Wow. <laughs> I thought I'd come to MMBC, but I came to MBCM. <laughs> MBCM. MBC of M. It's the discipleship podcast of the Monroe Missionary Baptist Church and is brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MMBC or MBC of M in Monroe, Michigan. Together, we encourage thoughtful discussion about the Christian faith and connect you to the people and the ministries of MMBC. Scott Slater, Tim Michelangeli, I'm Spencer Snow. We're joining you again uh, this week. We're glad that you're uh, with us. And uh, we've been walking through denominations. We talked about Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Lutheranism. This week, we want to talk about the Reformed tradition, the Reformed tradition, which is another tradition that comes out of the Protestant Reformation. It's really one of two, or I guess you maybe want to say three major streams that kind of come out of the Reformation. You have the Catholics, obviously, but then you've got Lutheranism, the Reformed tradition, and then I suppose you could throw in what people might call the Radical Reformation or the uh, which includes something like the uh, the Anabaptist or what are today known as Mennonites um, and peoples peoples like that. So the Reformed tradition um, uh, comes out of uh, the the Protestant Reformation. Just a little bit of background. So um, when you think about the Reformation, right? We talked about how it kind of traditionally um, we we target like fifteen seventeen as the the uh, date for the beginning of the Reformation, a little over 500 years ago. And Martin Luther, of course, was involved in the Reformation um, in modern-day Germany, but then also other Christians agreed with him um, about certain basic things, about salvation or about um, the fact that um, Scripture alone is the final authority. No longer do we need to look to the Pope or, or tradition for what we're to believe, but Scripture alone is sufficient and inspired and able to give us that guidance uh, that we need. It's the final judge. But then there were other uh, Christians like that who agreed with Luther, but then who also would, would later on break um, with the Lutherans and Luther and his followers on, on certain issues. Um, so they agreed on many things, but disagreed about certain things. So, for instance, uh, the Lord's Supper is something that the Reformed and the, the Lutherans uh, broke uh, fellowship over. Um, how is Christ present in the Supper? The Lutherans still say that in the bread and in the cup, Jesus is physically present in, with, and under the bread and the cup. 
The Reformed would say, no, there is a spiritual presence there. Jesus is there, but he's not there in his body and in his blood. His body is in heaven. It's, it can only be in one place at one time. And so his, his, the words, this is my body, are actually not saying this bread and this cup are, are both bread and the, the body and the cup and the blood, but um, Jesus is spiritually present here. So there was a difference there in the Lord's Supper that actually we look back to uh, maybe today and we think, wow, that was just a really small thing to separate over. But back then that was a really big issue. Um, and additionally, the, the Reformed emphasized God's sovereignty in salvation more so than even the Lutherans did. And, and another thing that was a bit of a difference was how they worshiped. Um, the Reformed churches followed what, what is today called um, the, the regulative principle, which is basically the idea that all of our worship is to be governed by God's word. And what that means is that we only do in worship what God has told us to do. So, for instance, uh, just because maybe we want to, um, you know, just because you want to do anything, uh, you may be, maybe that's, um, you know, we want to play basketball to the glory of God. So we're going to put a basketball hoop up on the stage and play basketball and make that part of our worship service. Now, Tim is intrigued by that. Sounds good. Yeah, but we would say, I mean, and the Lutherans wouldn't do that. I'm not saying they would, but we would say that there's an obvious example in the Reformed tradition of saying, well, we don't do anything that God doesn't command us to. So their, their services and um, also their churches are much more simple and simplistic um, in, in worship um, and such. And it's also just a really helpful thing to remind ourselves that the English Baptists, of which we come from, um, originated to a large degree out of the, the Reformed tradition. So we come out of, to a, in a broad sense, the Reformed tradition. Our Baptist, English Baptist forebears in the 1600s come out of this. So in a sense, the Reformed tradition is like our big brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, we're different from them, but we also have a, a kinship, a relationship to them of some similarities in a family tree. So, so I have a question. Yeah. So looking at these, um, would like some of these people that you provided on on these uh, ask a reformed Christian. Yeah. Would they, why wouldn't they just call themselves Presbyterians? Is there a significant difference between those who are reformed and those who are Presbyterian? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think to some degree, those words overlap. Um, so the reformed tradition would encompass. Cause one of them even said that their theology is basically Presbyterian. That like their confessions are, are, they said the Presbyterians have the Westminster Confession yeah. and smaller, larger catechism. Same doctrine, just yes. different context. Yeah. So t- oftentimes, though, the word Reformed, <clears throat> well, I guess I'll say this. The word Presbyterian, oftentimes, capital P Presbyterians, you're often thinking about people that are around in Scotland in the Reformation time um, or eventually in England, and they produce what are known today as the Westminster Standard, so which consists of a confession of faith and two different catechisms. So it's more British. The word pres- the Presbyterians are a British group more. Uh, the Reformed gr- would be more people that were not on the British Isles, but more on the continent, like in Germany or the Netherlands. Yeah. So s- something, so, so is, does that mean, I guess just this is how I've understood this, mm-hmm. that when you're talking about Reformed, you're not simply talking about doctrinal beliefs, but also historical origins? Yeah, I think probably Reformed can probably mean 
I, I'm, I don't want to speak for these people, but I think Reformed can be the broad overall tradition, which includes Presbyter- like the Scottish Presbyterians. They're, they're basically the Scottish Reformed people. But then on the other hand, if you want to think more of those words, how they're often used today, so you've got the Presbyterian Church in America, mm-hmm. which has the Westminster Standards, but then like um, you've got the United Reformed Churches, which are using the word reformed, but they're embracing the, their statements of faith are from the continent. So Germany and the Netherlands, not from England and Scotland. Um, so yeah, like he says, same doctrine, just different uh, context. And, and like the words, that's yeah. just different. I'm just yeah. pointing out because mm-hmm. it's different than what we've looked at with like Eastern Orthodox, right. Lutheran, right. which the thing that really distinguishes these from others is their, is their theological beliefs. Right. Where, when you're talking about reform versus presbyterian you're not just talking about theological differences but right. historical origins right yeah the reform tradition was very international um in its in its growth so it was in switzerland it was in france it was in the netherlands it was in germany um it was in scotland and england um and it was uh so it was a uh, it was really an international thing and eventually they come to the new world um as well to north america so in a lot of ways it was it was very international in a way that I don't know that Lutheranism was. Lutheranism, in a sense, is really restricted to Scandinavia and um, Germany. But uh, the Reformed tradition kind of goes international in, in certain ways. And eventually, um, yeah, it comes, comes to North America. Um, to but that's a really good, helpful point, um, what you were saying there, Scott. So we kind of come out of the... Uh, <clears throat> This, this broad tradition. And right away, one of the things that distinguishes, um, we want to talk about the Reformed tradition. Um, what One of the things that they distinguishes them, and whenever a lot of people think about um, Reformed theology or the Reformed tradition, right away, they think about an emphasis upon God's sovereignty in um, salvation and in Christ's work. And uh, what he what he has done. What do you think most people think? What is in most people's minds? Whether whether or not that's actually what the Reformed tradition teaches. What do you think most people think in their minds when they hear the ideas about God's sovereignty, or they hear terms like predestination, or whatever words come to their mind? What do you think is? I guess I'm trying to think about what preconceptions do they often have, or have you encountered in people who, when they hear these words, what's in their mind? I think it'd be normal people to think like fight that off with free will. How does this match? Are we robots? I think love comes up a lot because what does that mean? God, God's love, you know, loving people. Uh, if things are predetermined, I think those are probably the most common things I I've come across uh, when hearing that. Right. You know, people the questions people would have. I don't think I've really met many people that would disagree with the idea that God is sovereign. Mm. It's when you apply that, right? It, and and you, you could, could you that. define the word sovereign? What what what's that word mean? Uh, that you know, or what do most people think that that? Well, I don't know what most people would think by that, but I think like if well, I think what's communicated in the word sovereign is that God has ultimate authority. Mm. He is the as like a ruler. He is the sovereign mm. over his. And so he he has authority over his creation. He directs right. his creation as the ruler, as the creator. Mm. In right. a, the most broad sense, I think that's how you right. should describe Well, I that. guess like we, we as a country consider ourselves a sovereign country. Yeah, we it's, have authority over our own country. Right. No one else 
we're independent in the sense in which no one else has authority over us. We are the final authority over ourselves and we're independent and uh, yeah, yeah, we do. We, yeah. yeah, we do according to what we see as in our national interest. Mm-hmm. That where it's what makes a, a sovereign country yeah. able to act according to your own decisions and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in terms of the question of is God sovereign, I, I don't, I have not met many Christians who would say no, that he's not. But I, I think where some of the disagreement comes in is what Tim was saying is, well, then how does that play out? Right. You right. Know, what, what does that mean about this area, about this area, about that area? Right. Um, that's where some of the some of the conversation comes. Sure, sure. Okay. <clears throat> well, I don't know how, if we want to do all of these um, or what, but um, just kind of uh, talk about... Real quick, we'll just talk about some of the basic ideas. Um, so, for instance, whenever people hear about um, uh, the Reformed tradition, automatically the word comes up is uh, terms like predestination or election. Mm-hmm. What, um, first of all, are those terms in the Bible, regardless of whatever we think they mean? Are those are those terms in the Bible? Second of all, um, what does the Reformed tradition teach that those, what do they mean by those words and what they interpret the Bible to mean? I mean, it is, it's in the Bible. Um, we've been going through Ephesians together, and we see these words uh, in Ephesians, you know, at the very beginning, uh, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself. So, I mean, those words are in there mm-hmm. uh so you can't you can't deny that which is sad that some people do some people do right they want to push back as soon as they hear it and it's like well we've got to define it we've right find what what it means there and so the bible clearly speaks to these terms and no matter where people stand on this theological fence of like the reformed tradition uh, what would you say is the op- the the pushback what would you well, I think probably would you again, say like Arminian. Yeah, I mean that would that would actually be the um, the Arminians came out of the Reformed tradition, but rejected much of uh, what the Reformed tradition taught about these issues. So, but a good of, a good yeah. faithful Arminian right. would say, yeah, there's election and predestination. Right, they would say that too. It's just right. there's a different definition then. And Correct. So those words shouldn't scare people, or like those words shouldn't be offensive. Right. Because the Bible clearly speaks right. to those. It's just, yeah, different denominations, different people have defined them differently. So at least at, the, the, at the very minimum, we can say that regardless of whatever, wherever you're at on these issues, the word itself is in the text of Scripture, yeah. in, in various translations, by the way. Right. This, is in, mm-hmm. this is in the King James Bible. This mm-hmm. is in modern-day translations, mm-hmm. maybe different. I don't know all the translations and what terms they use, but they're using words like predestined or elect or election. Or, or chose. Or like chose. In, and there in Ephesians, he chose us. Right. Words like that are actually found in the text Mm-hmm. Of the Bible, I mm-hmm. think everybody agrees with that. Mm-hmm. Um, no one would quibble, would quibble with that. It would it, the discussion uh, would come up whenever we then define what those words uh, uh, mean, and so, um, and and really, this is really coming down to uh, the the question as well as um, why is it that you know when we look at the world, why do some men receive the gift of eternal life and other men don't? What makes the difference between someone who is a believer and is it an unbeliever? Is is 
is it is there something different in them in in the people themselves or is there something different outside of them what is the what is the difference and we're kind of wrestling with that and everybody is everybody um, perhaps might ask that question because we all recognize that not everybody believes not everybody does believe in Jesus and so the question is was why is that why does not everybody believe in Jesus um, we're those that's a basic observation we can all agree unless you're a universalist which I know that um, if you're a solid uh, Orthodox true Christian you won't be a universalist and believe everybody's going to go to heaven mm-hmm. um, we believe you you believe in Jesus so why is that and and I'm not saying that other people, I'm not saying everybody believes this, but you know, the question is, is it because that someone is uh, more virtuous than the other person? Is someone smarter than another person? Is it because you somehow were able to use your intellect and to believe in Jesus and that other person just wasn't as virtuous and didn't use his intellect or belief? Or what is the difference? What makes the difference? Well, um, the Reformed tradition teaches that the difference is is because of God's salvation and his, what they would term as eternal decree or election. And I'm going to read from one of their documents, the Canons of Dort. You can read this online. This is a very old document. And if you're interested in knowing what the Reformed tradition teaches about these things, um, I would encourage you to go read these things um, for yourselves. Um, but it says here, election is the unchangeable purpose of God whereby before the foundation of the world he has out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race which had fallen through their own fault from their primitive state of uprightness into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. So, it's a big long definition, but election is the unchangeable purpose of God by which he um, has chosen a certain number of persons to uh, redemption in Christ. Now, first of all, one of the things that comes to my mind is that's a very, the first part about being the purpose of God sounds really similar to um, even the Baptist faith and message where it says Bab- uh, that election is the, the gracious purpose of God or something like that. But it says the unchangeable purpose of God here um, and, and such. Um that whereby he chooses a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ. So the reason why some believe and some don't isn't because somebody is better than another person. It's because of God's sovereign decision. That's where they would rest the case at. Now, one of the things it says here, though, is it says a certain number of persons. Yes. Does that mean particular persons? Yes. Or does it mean... Once we reach just the, decided, we've hit our you quota. Know, yeah, we've it was hit our quota. Be, <laughs> yeah. 144,000. Yeah. Right, I mean, right. Do they have other... <laughs> Yeah. Right, right. Do they have other documents that make that clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that there's other clarity in this same document as well. But yeah, no, that's a good question. It's not like there's a quota to meet. It's that in God's eternal mind has always existed to save these specific individuals. Um, That's what the Reformed tradition teaches. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, that is one interpretation of what it means in Ephesians and throughout the Bible, whenever you run into words like predestination, election, now probably most people don't agree with that interpretation of those words and of those passages of Scripture, but that is what the Reformed tradition believes those passages of Scripture are teaching. Any further thoughts about that? Or, I mean, you say most people might not agree. I mean, I don't know. What do you base that off of? 
Roman Catholicism so big? I mean, are you counting them? I'm assuming that, I, yeah, I don't, I'm just assuming my interactions with most Christians is that they would be uncomfortable. And even, but not even just Christians, people who are unbelievers would be uncomfortable with this idea, I think, um, in many instances. Now, maybe I'm wrong. That's just my impression. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't have statistical evidence to support that, but. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, this, it, it becomes very important because, uh, like we've been mentioning, you find it in a lot of places in Scripture, you know. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head all the other places, but uh, what is it? It says, uh, Esau I hated, right? Jacob I loved. Jacob Esau I loved, I Esau I hated. And it's like, oh, gosh, wait a right. second. Right. You're talking about the line of Abraham here, and yeah. all of a sudden he hated. Like, this This is a problem. And right. it says you chose Jacob, right? right. Uh, what's going on? And, and that's that's found in the book of Malachi, yeah, and quoted by Paul, right, in Romans chapter nine. Yes, and so I mean that's something you have to wrestle with, right? Or, or it talks about Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, right? And, uh, we see where God chose Moses, God chose Abraham, God chose Noah, right? We see all this stuff, and we have to explain that. There has to be a way to explain that. Now, would you guys agree with this though? That some of the thing this this is very uh, difficult to wrestle with. Would you guys agree with that? Just by in, in means of trying to explain it well can be hard because we do see very clearly, like what we're talking about. We see these words: God chose, God elected, God predestined. But we also see where man is responsible for their sin where by faith those who confess with their mouths right and believe in their heart they will be saved so now we see this action it seems from us which doesn't seem to mesh well together we're like wait a second you're saying god chose all this but then we're also saying over here that i choose this how does this mesh together and that's hard like it's really hard to say to where maybe this is where I don't know if you guys would agree. Would you get to a point to say there is some mystery here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I think I think they would even say that you can't explain um, everything. Actually, it would probably be a very um, it would be to impose our reason and rationalism that would make you deny this. You would either go to fatalism mm-hmm. and say it doesn't matter at all, and it that's one error or it would lead you to the other error to say, well, God can't really be doing this. So it just must be about our response. Mm -hmm. And, um, both of those are trying to, um, utilize human reason above the text of script, not, not to serve, to understand scripture, but saying that can't be that way. So like where we go back to like the Lutherans that we talked about before, where they're just like, it's what the Bible says. Right. Right. That's not even right. 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 We want to try to explain yes. and figure it out. God does give us reason. Right. He gives us so, the ability to Yes. Learn. So, for instance, on the one hand, the Reformed tradition would say God has chosen a select number, certain individuals for salvation. On the other hand, he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Now, you can either err on one side and say, well, he only elects, he never commands people to believe the gospel, or he doesn't sincerely offer Jesus to all sinners. That would be one way of using your reason to say, well, 
that's you know because the Bible teaches both of those things, mm-hmm. and or you can use your reason to impose above Scripture and say, well, no, it can't be predestination and election, so it has to only be about the fact that we're all to believe, and that's just whatever we can muster out of ourselves. Um, and and I think that that's again where we're trying the reform tradition. Ironically, I think in many ways, and maybe here we're showing uh, you know my cards a little bit, but I think it actually tries to be very balanced in both responsibility. All men are are. And notice, by the way, the way it's phrased, all men are already guilty. It's not like God is making of some people sin. He's not making people sin. And he's also not, um, it's, it, he also commands the gospel to be proclaimed to all nations. He commands the gospel to be, uh, to the commands to believe and repent. And, and people who don't believe and repent will be held accountable for the fact that they did not believe and repent whenever they had the opportunity to. That will actually increase their guilt. Um, so I think that there's actually a, a quite balanced perspective here, and it's only whenever we want to choose one or the other that we actually, um, you know, we fall off the horse on one side or the other. I think there are aspects of it that, uh, Tim, you were asking, like, if it's difficult to explain. I think it is. I think it's difficult for anybody to explain, no matter what side of the issue you land on, whether you would find yourself kind of in line with the Reformed thinking in this or not, because you you even pointed out a couple of passages that seem to state pretty clearly like what they're talking about, about God's action being in this. And so if if someone doesn't line up with that kind of thinking, well, I mean, yeah, they've, they've got a challenge ahead of them too of, well, how do I understand these passages of Scripture? You know, how do I explain these without trying to import a foreign meaning to them right. than what the author had. And so wherever you land on the issue, it's it's going to be a challenge, I think, mm-hmm. to, to try to be faithful to what we've talked about on other podcasts about our dedication to Scripture alone as our authority. And so any attempt, I think, to try to explain what we think uh, is, is going to be a challenge. That's yeah. not to say we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, either side is going to have challenges because there are passages that we either either or has to reckon with. Yeah, so I think of like First Timothy two four that says God desires for all men to be saved. Right? We have something like that, mm-hmm. which which would be like, see, God wants everybody to be saved. So would you come? Would you come and be be saved? There's this free will action. It sounds like in there, God desires all come to be saved. But then we read something like John six where jesus would say something along the lines of my father must give me those who are his and anybody those who come i will accept because i don't push away anything that my father has chosen right i mean that's what we see in in john six and so then we have like well man jesus is saying that the father is the one who sends people to him but then over here it sounds like this like how do we match this together and now i think the three of us would have a way that we would say that and meld it together. But it's, I just bring that up to point out, like you have to wrestle with these things to, to really study the word of God. You can't, you can't just deny it. You can't just say, well, I don't care. No, you got to, you have to care to really, to be able to talk well about this and have an answer for this because they're, they are fair questions. If you're talking to somebody who's not a believer and they have these questions that are honestly fair, it's a, it's a fair thing to ask, right? Like if you went and said, 
God desires all men to be saved. And the person's like, well, what about what Jesus said here that the father must choose, you know, who is coming to him? You can't just sit there and look at them with a blank stare and say, ah, don't worry about that. Right, right. You have to then have a response to right. that and a, and a fair sure. biblical response to that. And so I'm just trying to bring out the point that it's necessary to study these, to have answers and yourself to think, to really think through them. You know, it was it was a nice world that I lived in for many years in the church where I didn't have to think about these things. <laughs> it's a beautiful state of ignorance, right? Then all of a sudden I started getting older and I started asking questions myself, like, wait a second, what about this? And what about mm-hmm. this? And Or things started to come up to where it was like, I have to be able to answer these questions and to pray through what does election mean? What does predestination mean? What is calling for all men to be saved? What does that mean, right? I think that has to be wrestled with, and it's fair that these guys, these people, long time ago, were wrestling with right. these things. And you may not agree with the answers they gave, you but at not. least they gave an answer for you to disagree with, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or to agree with, right? Yeah. Another one last text before we move on from this about some other distinctives, but a verse that comes to my mind about how these things are paired, even in Jesus' own ministry, mm-hmm. is Matthew chapter eleven. Jesus at that time declared. Chapter 11, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So the Father has done two things. He has hidden the gospel truths to some people, and he's revealed them to other people. Mm-hmm. And he says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Those are verses that are emphasizing God's sovereignty. The very next verse, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus has no problem pairing these truths, mm-hmm. whatever it is, together. Yeah. He has, says this, and we would think, well, you, can, you can't say verse 28 after that. Right. But he does. He does. He does. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I just think that that's where you have to wrestle with both those aspects that Jesus, as you pointed out, and the Bible is littered mm-hmm. with these with these things being uh, side by side, I think. And so you have to at least uh, come to a some kind of a decision about what you think the, the Bible teaches about these things. So on and on, there's there's this this theme of sovereignty runs through uh, the Reformed uh, tradition. Now, one thing that most Baptists, I think, at least all of us as Southern Baptists, um, I can't believe I use the word all of us as Southern Baptists. I'm so proud of you, Spencer. Wow. Um, all of us Baptists in Southern Michigan. Um, <laughs> Southeastern. Southeastern Michigan. <laughs> but one of the things that we would all agree upon that they taught was the fact that no matter, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you will ultimately, you, God will preserve you to the end. And all of us, all Southern Baptists, um, mm-hmm. everybody would, would agree with that, unless you're a free will Baptist or something like that, that would believe that you could fall away from salvation. Um, we would agree with them in this uh, aspect that, that true believers ultimately are held fast by God who uh, holds them fast um, through, throughout their lives. Um, yeah, we could talk about covenant theology, which I don't know that we will want to do that. Let's talk real quick um, as we wrap up here, though, about worship. 
this is one of the distinctive things about um, the Reformed tradition is that it's um, they place a great emphasis upon how we worship God as a church and the sense in which, and what they mean by worship is not simply your whole life, but they're talking about corporate worship. And there's a greater, there's an emphasis upon um, our worship being governed by scripture and, um, and such like this. So one of the things they say in, uh, in, the, in one of their statements, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, they say the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Now, right away, the Reformed are saying there are unacceptable ways to worship God. Now, Scott, this again goes back to your sermon you talked about, that good intentions aren't everything. It's good to have good intentions, but that's not, it's possible to still sin and break God's word with the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. And so there are unacceptable ways of worshiping God, um, and there are acceptable ways of worshiping God. So they emphasize the truth that we only do what God has revealed um, in his word and told us to do. Again, another quote from uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan. He's a Presbyterian reform guy. He says this, the regulative principle, which is the principle that they use as a, as a stating this basic idea of how we're to worship God, is simply the assertion that we must worship God in the way that he has revealed himself and the way he has commanded us to worship him in his word. So it's very, they're attempting, the attempt is to really root their corporate worship gatherings in the scriptures and, and do only what uh, God has commanded. How is this different from uh, the Lutherans and maybe the, ref, the, the previous denominations that we've looked at? Is there a different nuance that they're bringing to the table? How does that, flat, what do you think about that and and this this whole idea of that we only do what God has commanded us to do in corporate worship. I mean, it seems like in Roman Catholicism, Eastern when we, I don't know if we talked about it much, but I've like I've watched videos of, I can't remember what it's called, but this guy like visits the churches and talks to the yeah. priests and different things. The ten minute Bible hour. Yeah, and they talk about like all the different things. There's so much symbolism and all this stuff in their worship of everything they do, like every movement has a purpose, not necessarily that Scripture commands that they do this purpose, but they have done this traditionally to maybe show a truth, yeah. reveal a truth. So like even with Eastern, or- Eastern Orthodox, I do think we talked about this, how everything <clears throat> smell is important mm. in the service and, and uh, everything, every sense that you have is becomes important. And, and so the things that you're seeing be done, uh, there's, again, symbolism behind it, like, you know, they would talk about, look at, there's three chains here. The three chains represent this Trinity mm. and it's holding this. Like when you watch and hear these people talk about this, it's, it's fascinating to hear about, right. uh, but that's not commanded, right? It's not commanded in, in scripture to have this incense here and to burn this incense at this time. And it represents this. They've, they've added that apart from what I would say mm-hmm. scripture says. And that's right. where this tradition here, this reformed tradition wouldn't do those things because scripture hasn't come out and said, do this right in worship, right, right. Yeah, I mean, what Lutherans would adhere to, uh, by and large, is is what's called like the normative principle, as opposed to the regulative principle. Which, like, you have a quote here 
uh, from Samuel Rutherford that just says, in the worship of God, to not command is to forbid. So, I've, as I understand it, the, ref, the uh, regulative principle is saying, we do what God commands, nothing else. The normative principle says, we do whatever God has not forbidden us to do. We have freedom to do whatever God has not forbidden us to do. And so, I think it's, I mean, which, th- those are the two differences, as I understand it. I think it's important to remember, though, that even different people who would hold to the, the regulative principle, like in terms of, okay, well, what, what has God commanded us to do? Well, there are limitations to that, obviously, of there have been certain things commanded, but how, do, how are those things played out? Like there's, even among Reformed traditions, like between Reformed and Presbyterian, they disagree on, like, for instance, whether or not music is appropriate in worship. Uh, you know, should it just be a cappella singing, or should it be, is it okay for music to accompany it, mm-hmm. right? So that's a disagreement even among people who would e- say that they equally hold the regulative principle. So there's still some there's still some wiggle room, I would say, um, but it is definitely more uh, restricted in terms of that, just because it's what has God specifically commanded us to do, right? And also I think that that is... Um in a sense, this is part of the, we talked about how the Reformed tradition is the big brother of uh, the Baptist tradition in some ways. And this instinct, this principle plays out in the Baptist understanding of, of baptism because mm-hmm. if God hasn't shown us to baptize infants, we don't do it. Mm-hmm. That's really the, so it's like, I know sometimes um, we hear this um a modern day Baptist, we maybe hear this and we're like, oh, that's a little restrictive. But actually that's our whole rationale for practicing the baptism of professing believers alone is because we only find that in the New Testament. We cannot find it in other things in the New Testament. Therefore, we only do what God has commanded us to do according to the text of Scripture. If we follow the other principle, then um, we would obviously we could end up at different places. So I think it's helpful to remind ourselves, even as uh, as Baptists, that this principle, in a sense, already plays itself out in that one issue in our life and our convictions as Baptists. Mm. It's just whether or not we're fleshing that out in the rest of our of our of our of our uh, understanding of yeah. worship as well. So just we may have forgotten this, and people who listen to this may have forgotten this, but we actually did a whole podcast yeah. series. On worship. At the very beginning. Yeah, that was like the first thing we did, Yeah, right? It's kind of our debut. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, if, if people listening to this, maybe they've started listening since we've yeah. been going. Good point. They can go back and listen to those old episodes. Right. Because to, to, we really dive into some, like, asking the question, well, what are those things we're commanded yeah. to do? We really dive into those things. Yeah, yeah. Um, if they want to know more. Good point, good point. Um. So yeah, so we talk about um, the Reformed tradition, just worship, and it's it's really trying to take worship uh, very seriously. Um, so one of the things Scott pointed out is in the Reformed tradition, you'll have uh, churches that will sing only the Psalms uh, because they believe they're only commanded to sing the Psalms. You'll have other churches that will sing hymns or maybe even contemporary songs as well. It, there's, there's differences of understanding um, uh, there, but uh, definitely I think one of the things we could uh, appreciate is the fact that maybe while we may not say we should only sing the Psalms, 
we can maybe learn to say maybe we should sing the psalms at least somewhat because that word is used in the New Testament to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So um, maybe that's something to uh, consider. Additionally, a difference between uh, us, for instance, and the Reformed tradition, but obviously in the realm of baptism, they would continue to baptize infants. Um, To them, it is a parallel with circumcision, uh, just as God commanded Abraham, whenever he was a believer, to uh, circumcise all his male children. so similarly today, they believe that believers should have their children baptized. It's a, they, they view them as uh, parallel situations um, in, in that instance. They would restrict at least the, the, uh, the Orthodox ones to Lord's Supper to uh, those who are profess faith. And they're doing that. They're not saying that they believe that their children by being baptized are then saved. Correct. Yeah. So Correct. just the water it. does not change the 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 child. Yeah. It's, it's a sign and a seal, so it's a, a symbol. Um, it is a, a special thing. But yeah, good good point, Scott. It's it's different from Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism in and that us. sense. And us. Yeah. Well, we I mean, believe that baptism is only a, as a Baptist church. We believe baptism is only appropriate for someone who is saved. Right. But we would agree with them in that it doesn't create faith. They would say, yes. yeah, it doesn't. The yeah. water doesn't magically it's not like it's spooky water all of a sudden Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah so um those are just some basic things about uh uh the reformed tradition in general um and if you want to learn more about them there's there's differences as well there were um presbyterians or the reformed or even in new england we think about thanksgiving coming up the the pilgrims they would fall under this tradition of as a congregationalist um and such so Anyway, just kind of uh, some interesting things to think about, especially as we think about them and our relationship to them as Baptist and uh, and such like that. So, anyway, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Not really. Okay. All right. I'm sure you do the outro, correct? Yeah. You already messed up the beginning. I appreciate that. (laughs) Okay. Let's raise this up. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much for listening to us. Um, We look forward to uh, being with you next time when we talk about, I believe, the Anabaptists. Take care. God bless.